Our sermon text this morning is 2 Timothy 4. Uh, We're going to look at verses 14 to the end of the book. Lord willing, this will be the last sermon, at least in this series, on the book. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the closing greeting in the sermon, but we'll touch on it briefly. But if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. Give ear to the word of God this morning. Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. The sin is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we're, we're finishing up our series through the book of 2 Timothy. And with that, uh, really through the, the, the pastoral epistles, we're not going through Titus next. Uh, we may do that at some point in the future. Um, just to give you a preview, uh, we probably won't start it quite next Sunday yet. Uh, but my plan, if, we'll see if it's God's plan. My plan is the next book for us to go through will be 1 John, John's first epistle. Uh, we've been talking about that a great deal, it seems like, when we were going through the, the shorter catechism. So uh, that's all about, a lot of that book is about the doctrine of assurance of salvation. So that'll be a great book for us to go through. So pray for me as I get ready to go through that. That'll be a great time. But here in the closing verses of Paul's last known letter, uh, he gives us kind of a brief glimpse into his perspective on his present trials, both literal and otherwise. And uh, he, those trials include things like Alexander, he mentions, who the people and others who sought to do him harm. He mentions those who failed to stand by him in the midst of his trial. And he also mentions the faithfulness of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of his trials. Now, it might be easy to overlook, and I don't think I emphasized it when I was reading the text, but maybe it jumped off the page at you like it did to me at some point. But this this short text of verses 14 through 18, five short verses, and, and Paul explicitly mentions the Lord Jesus Christ and his actions three times regarding his trials and afflictions. Uh, three times he speaks of the Lord himself supporting him and, and defending him. Briefly, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did him great harm or did him great evil and also opposed the message of the gospel. But what does he say happened? The Lord would repay him for what he did to Paul. Paul was leaving it in Christ's hands. At Paul's first defense, he tells us that everyone deserted him. The people who should have stood by him and defended him deserted him. But what does he say that Lord Jesus Christ did? The Lord did what? stood by him and strengthened him so that the message of the gospel might continue to be proclaimed and testified to by the Apostle Paul. And then last but not least, he says it was the Lord himself who would continue to deliver Paul from every evil deed and, quote, bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. 
So at every point in Paul's trials, what does Paul look to? Who does Paul look to? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus does all things well. He will make all things right. Paul trusted that he would do that. And in some ways you could say that the, Paul's message at the end of this text is kind of a repetition of what Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, that nothing in all creation, not even martyrdom itself, could separate Paul or any believer from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. The same thing that Paul writes about in Romans 8, uh, Paul really believed that, and Paul applied it to himself in his present trials, even to his impending martyrdom under Nero in Rome. Let's go through our text briefly here. The first thing that Paul reminds Timothy of, in some ways, is the sad reality of the persecution of the persecution of the church, and especially that which is against those who are preaching the gospel before a hostile and unbelieving world. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message so not only does he, does he talk about the Lord repaying Alexander for what he did to Paul, but he gives Timothy a reminder and a warning, you know, watch out for this guy. Don't let him harm you the way he did me. And that's always a good thing for us to do. What does the Bible say? Jesus says, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Don't walk blindly unnecessarily into harm's way. If you don't have to, be careful. Now, we don't know for sure who this Alexander is. There are a number of Alexanders mentioned in the, Old in the New Testament, rather. And even in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul mentions an Alexander that had made a shipwreck of his faith along with Hymenaeus. You might remember that text. And Paul says there that he handed them over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. Now, we don't know if this is the same Alexander as mentioned in the previous book. Uh, if that is the case, it would appear to be a case of him kind of going further and further into apostasy and the hardening of his heart. Uh, John Calvin, no less than John Calvin, takes that view and calls the case of Alexander a dreadful example of apostasy. And he says he had professed some zeal, you know, previously in furthering Christ's kingdom, but afterwards he carried on open warfare against it. So that is one possibility that Paul is talking about the same Alexander he mentioned in the previous letter in 1 Timothy. But uh, while that's possible, as another commentator points out, it seems to me more likely that this is a different Alexander of whom we don't know much about. And that is why Paul distinguishes that Alexander from the previous one by referring to his trade and calling him Alexander the coppersmith. So Timothy would know which one he was referring to in this case, I think that's more, more likely than the other option. Now, to some degree, we can only speculate about the details here. Paul doesn't say, we, don't, we, we aren't left to know, what harm he did. We can speculate, and there's some you know, degree of that that's probably acceptable. Uh, in, in the context of Paul's trial, there may be something related to that. We don't, we don't really know. But uh, it's likely that this Alexander, who had done such great harm or much evil, as the King James puts it to Paul, it's probable, I think, and likely that he did this harm to Paul on account of his trade being negatively impacted by Paul's ministry of the gospel. You know, what's the old saying, follow the money? Uh, well, that's true a lot of times when it comes to these things as well. Uh, there sometimes is a very practical cause or, or motivation behind these things. 
And the reason I say that is we have examples of this exact kind of thing in the book of Acts regarding Paul's own ministry. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, if you remember that, that chapter, Paul was ministering in the, in the city of, of Ephesus. And as he was doing that, some pretty remarkable things uh, were being done. You know, we would call them the signs of an apostle, uh, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ worked through the apostle Paul, including things like healing the sick and casting out demons, things that you know, some would claim to do today, but I don't think that they have the warrant to do so. The New Testament calls these things the signs of an apostle. We no longer have apostles. We have their doctrine, but we don't have and should not be looking for apostles. If anybody claims to be an apostle today, we should reject that out of hand and refuse to accept them or even listen to them. But in that, in that chapter, there were a group of men called the seven sons of Sceva. Sceva was a Jewish high priest. And what they were doing, I kind of compare it to the magicians in, in Pharaoh's court. They were trying to duplicate Paul's miracles. They were trying in particular to cast out demons. And this one particular demon-possessed man, they were not able to do this. And the evil spirit says to them, Acts 19.15, you might recall this verse, the demon-possessed man said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? You know, where do you, where, where do you get off trying to tell us what to do? Uh, you don't have the right. And, and what it says is that the possessed man beat those seven men. Think about what that must have looked like. Beat them within an inch of their life. They fled bleeding and naked. That's a fight. And this demon-possessed man just about killed them, and this caused quite a stir. This gets people's attention, and it certainly did in Paul's day. In Acts 19, 18 to 20, it says this, Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, their, their former sins. It says, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, you know, I've read that text. I don't know how many times maybe you have too. Um, 50,000 pieces of silver. I'm going to guess no one here has ever hit a, a, a slot machine at, at Vegas or something and had that many coins pop out. Uh, I don't know what that pile would look like, but I'm imagining it would be pretty impressive. That's what, Paul, that's what Luke, the, the doctor, the writer of, of the book of Acts, is telling us. Like, this was a big deal. They burned their cultic books in front of everyone and repudiated them because they came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I'll say that's, that is what happens when the Spirit of God is at work through the gospel of Christ. When people are converted, really savingly converted under the preaching of the gospel, part of what happens is sinners turn from their sin. They turn from their wicked ways. They turn from their idols, their false religion, and they turn to Christ their lives are forever changed, and no one can escape noticing it. About uh, very late in that very same chapter in, in, in Acts, Luke writes the following in Acts 19:23 to 27. You know the old saying, "But wait, there's more. Wait, there's more." It says about that time, the same time of that outbreak of, of the gospel and people repudiating their idols. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. It's probably a nice way of, descri of describing uh, unrest. He says, for a man named Demetrius, and notice what his job is, a silversmith. I wonder what a silversmith uh, would do and why he'd be not liking Paul's preaching there. 
Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These, the craftsmen, he gathered together with all the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Paul's preaching of the gospel included a repudiation of the wickedness of idolatry. And it goes on, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Guess what? That's exactly what happened. You know, you ever hear the seven wonders of the ancient world? Well, the temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis, was one of them. It's nothing but a ruin now. And no one's worshiping Artemis and Diana in our day. And why is that? Because Jesus conquered Asia in Paul's day with his gospel. And when Paul came to town with the gospel, the idols weren't, weren't given any, any wiggle room. He, he was in no way, in no uncertain terms, he repudiated their idols. It's the thing the whole city was known for. And here's Paul coming to town preaching the gospel, and he didn't say, I preach one way among many to you, and oh, you know, this is just a cultural thing, and you know, those idols are really neat, and all these. Paul wasn't winsome in that way. Paul came to town and said, those idols are fake. They're not gods. There's one God, and I'm going to tell you who he is. That's how Paul preached, and God blessed it. The ministry of the gospel of Christ always has the effect of overthrowing the idols of a place. Conversion, by definition, involves sinners turning from idols, as Paul says elsewhere, turning from their idols to serve the one true and living God, as, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. And simply put, the gospel in some places is bad for business for those who make a profit off the idols of that particular place. Now, what happened there in Ephesus? A riot broke out later in the chapter, a riot. A violent riot, they wanted blood, violence ensued, great evil was threatened against Paul and those with him. Uh, they had to protect Paul. They had to shield him from the people that were rioting and not let him go back out into the crowd. And I'll say this, should we expect nothing similar if we are faithful to the gospel in our own generation? Does the gospel that we hold to and proclaim not also still confront and overthrow the idols of our culture? We... We, I think sometimes we think that we're advanced beyond idolatry in our land because we're not uncivilized heathen. There's idols everywhere if you just have the eyes to see them. And the gospel would overthrow these as well. Think about the sexual immorality and perversion. It's, it's bordering on a cult in our day. It's an idol that needs to be overthrown. Does the word of God not refute these things? Think about abortion. Think about gambling. Think about statism i would say one of the greatest idols in our land is the worship of the state the, the putting of godlike authority in the hands of men who are supposed to do their job under the authority of christ and who ser are to serve him as his ministers answering to him there's no room for that with christianity nor was there in previous generations 
Or do we err in seeking to remove the offense of the gospel itself? There's much talk of being winsome in our days. Nothing wrong with that understood properly. But does, does our gospel leave people comfortable in their sins and unbelief? Are we so worried about not offending people who offend God that we don't worry about them offending God by their sins? And do we on some level really do this, I think, in order to avoid the hatred and persecution that are sure to come our ways in some ways otherwise? I think these are hard questions that we have to consider at times. So what did Paul do and what, what could he do about it? You know, Paul, Paul didn't have an army. Paul didn't have bodyguards like we might think of. He didn't have an entourage and things to protect him. What could he do? He couldn't take vengeance into his hands, nor did he try to do so. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted him to Christ that as bad as the harm and the evil was that was done to him by Alexander and others. And, you know, what was it? We don't know. Was it perhaps Alexander bearing false witness against Paul in his trial? Was it him seeking to, to kind of tip the scale that Paul might for sure be executed? Very possibly so. Bearing false witness is not just lying. Bearing false witness uh, can be just that. Bearing false witness in a capital trial, that may have been what he was doing, slandering Paul in order to seek to tip the scale to ensure Paul's execution. But what did Paul do in response? Paul trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Christ, who is reigning and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. Paul trusted Jesus to make it right. He says simply, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He trusted Christ would make it right, as he will do all things. Was this an imprecatory prayer, calling upon the Lord to judge his enemies? Possibly. Uh, maybe so. Such prayers of imprecation are found throughout the Bible. They're found in the book of Psalms. They're found in the book of Revelation. When the people, the martyrs under the, under the altar, what did they say? How long, O Lord? And Jesus didn't say, oh, no, no, you got the wrong idea. We don't do that anymore around here. Well, don't be silly. That's Old Testament stuff. No, he said, wait. It's coming. Wait. His own, his own time, he will do all these things and do them well. Uh, you know, Paul and, and others, I'm, I'm sure they left vengeance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they took great comfort in the fact that Jesus would make it right. He really would. See how Paul thought his thoughts, his words, and everything seemed constantly to turn back to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of his trials and his sufferings. All, all through this brief text, he brings up the Lord himself. The Lord himself, Jesus Christ, will repay the enemies of his church, and he will do it in his time and do it perfectly well. We, we won't be in heaven on the last day saying, yeah, but. Well, if Jesus would have just done something about this, he's going to do something about all of it, sometimes in this life and sometimes in the life to come. But notice as we go through our text, to Paul his Christianity, his faith, wasn't just some abstract doctrinal system. There's plenty of doctrine involved, right? It wasn't just some abstract philosophy that helped him kind of cope with things to get through. His Christianity was about Christ and the doctrine of Christ, the actual risen and ascended Christ and what he was even doing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Well, the second thing that Paul mentions is not only that he was harmed by Alexander, but also that everyone who should have been expected to be by his side during his trial, his actual trial, had abandoned him. 
know, what's the old saying, adding insult to injury. I mean, this, if they would have just stood by him, imagine how much better he may have felt. But look at, look at verse 16 again. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Now, again, we, it's, it's kind of a little bit like listening to half a phone call. You ever watch a TV show or a movie or you're in the room with somebody and they're on the phone and all you hear is the person talking. You don't hear the person on the other end. It's a little bit like that. We don't know exactly all the details of Paul's trial, his defense, and all these things. So what does he mean by his first defense? Some have claimed that this was Paul's previous trial where he was set free eventually, and then he eventually was on trial again in Rome and, and was martyred and executed under Nero. Uh, likely, more than likely, but we can't be sure, it was probably the first phase or first part of this particular trial in Rome, whatever that may have entailed. And perhaps those who Paul has in mind here would have been expected maybe even not just to be there with him and show moral support, maybe they were expected to actually testify on his behalf. We don't know for sure what that seems somewhat likely. But whatever the case was, whatever he had hoped they were going to do, they didn't do it. And very likely, we don't know, even as the, the previous passage we looked at, there's a possibility that anybody who came and stood by Paul was endangering their own lives. They, you know, the, 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 uh, the scandal or whatever of his trial may have rubbed off on them, and to be too closely associated with Paul would put them in suspicion of the same, uh, at least the way the Romans would have viewed it, the same uh, trial of sedition or charge of, of sedition. Now just imagine how crushing that must have been for somebody like Paul. Paul Read, I mean, read the book of Acts sometime and see all the sufferings he endured just to make the gospel known, just to plant churches, just that people might hear of Christ and have salvation. And then in some ways, some of those same people that benefited from his ministry and the gospel by God's grace, just leaving Paul on his own and can't be bothered to come stand with him. Um, how crushing that must have been. Yet notice Paul's gracious attitude towards them. He just says, may it not be charged against them may it not be held to their account by whom it's implied right by christ may christ not judge them too harshly for it no bitterness no vindictiveness he simply prays that the lord might not hold it to their account and i'll ask you know all these things have application to us we're not on trial for our lives at the moment but do we show such grace to our fellow believers in this life who let us down in far lesser ways but Paul's, Paul's life's on the line, and they're letting him down. I dare say most of us or all of us have never had that kind of a situation. But do we show similar grace to our fellow Christians who let us down in far lesser ways? Or do we hold grudges and behave more like the world than like Christians? We're going to spend eternity in heaven with one another. Now, by the grace of God, the Apostle Paul emulated the attitude of Christ himself, I think, here. Even back when his own disciples, when Christ's own disciples deserted him, at his arrest in his greatest hour of need. Remember, they couldn't even stay awake. And we would have done no better. But what do you say? You know, watch and pray, watch and pray. And, and the soldiers came. More than that, Jesus even showed forgiveness towards those who were crucifying him when he was on the cross. Luke 23, verse 34 says that Jesus said, as he was being crucified, put to death, he said, Father, what? Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The mercy he has even from the cross um, and once again, uh, but, but what does Paul do? He keeps his eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ again, doesn't he? Look at verse 17. He says, but the Lord stood by me 
and strengthen me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Jesus was able to take care of Paul even when everybody else abandoned him. The Lord Jesus stood by him in his trial when no one else did. Not only that, he didn't just stand by him. Paul says he strengthened him in such a way that the message of the gospel might be fully proclaimed so that all the Gentiles, he says, might hear it. Even in Paul's chains, even in the midst of his trials, literal and otherwise, the Lord enabled Paul by his grace and power to continue to testify to his own death and resurrection. And to Paul, that was more important than his freedom. You know, Paul nowhere here seems all that concerned about it. Now, I'm sure he wanted to not die a bloody death under Nero. I'm sure he would much prefer not to be in jail. But what was his chief concern? The glory of Christ and the spread and preaching of his gospel. And, and despite his chains, as he says elsewhere, you can't chain or bind the word of God. And they, and they did not do that even when they were threatening Paul's life. Paul's testimony in his trial ended up really being a testimony, and it couldn't help but be, a testimony to the gospel of Christ. It gave Paul maybe a strange venue to preach in, but it's what he did and what he used it for. None of us, not even Paul, are capable of that kind of a thing on our own. We would all be silenced, I think, uh, wouldn't we? You know, we, we might be like Peter in one of his not-so-great moments when he said, if everybody else turns away from you, I'm paraphrasing, not me, you know, and then later on they all, they all turned, including him, away from Christ. Um, I think we're all on our own, natural-born cowards. We would all be silenced by the threats that Paul faced. But the Lord Jesus had strengthened Paul so that he preached the word. And think about this. This is the same thing we see elsewhere in the book of Acts. Uh, this, was, this was what Paul tended to do by God's grace. In Acts chapter 26, we see there Paul on trial testifying before Festus and King Agrippa. And what does he speak of when he's on trial? Now, there's lots of things he may have said that aren't, aren't recorded for us for a reason in the book of Acts. They aren't needed for us for our edification. Maybe Paul was like, hey, you got the wrong idea. You got the wrong guy. Who knows what else he may have said in his own defense. But what we see in the book of Acts is Paul preaching the gospel. What is, when they ask for his, his account of what happened, what does Paul do? It's as if he doesn't defend himself at all. He gives the story of his own conversion to Christ on the Damascus Road, his background before that in Judaism. He gives his commission from the risen Christ on the Damascus Road to preach the gospel. He's telling them, hey, the, the man I'm preaching about is alive and reigning right now. He's the one who saved me. He's the one that ordered me to preach the gospel that I'm preaching and commissioned him to do that. He told them the message of the gospel. While he's on trial for his life, he tells them the substance of the message that was entrusted to him, including the death and resurrection of Christ, even as it's foretold in the Old Testament, verses 22 and 23. He says, these unbelieving Jews, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that don't believe my message, all I'm doing is telling people what their, what their scriptures talked about, about the sufferings and glory of Christ who was to come. And he, did, he went, more, went further than that, too. He pressed the truth of the gospel upon the magistrates, upon Festus and King Agrippa. He put it right to them. He didn't just leave it in the abstract. He did this to such an extent that in Acts 26, 28 to 29, listen to the words of King Agrippa to Paul after his testimony. 
Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Agrippa got the point. We don't know if he ever came to faith. He, he understood exactly what Paul was doing. Paul wasn't just testifying for his own defense. Paul was testifying to the gospel of Christ. Paul didn't waste his chains. He didn't waste his trial, and Agrippa got the point. Paul was seeking Agrippa's conversion, as well as those who were listening to him uh, in the court. Even while his own life was in Agrippa's hands, Paul didn't let the offense of the gospel keep him from preaching even to King Agrippa. Only the Lord Jesus can strengthen someone to do something like that. And may he be pleased to make us, who are not on trial for our lives at the moment, more bold witnesses for him. And also Paul says, as he puts it, that he was, quote, rescued from the lion's mouth. He wasn't dead yet. They haven't got me yet. Jesus keeps, you know, Paul's kind of like the gospel terminator. They keep trying to kill him. He keeps getting back up and preaching. And until he was, his job was done, Christ was going to keep preserving him. Much like Daniel in the lion's den, remember, remember that? Uh, the good shepherd rescued his lamb Paul from death. And it wasn't his time yet to depart and go home and be with Christ. Now, last but not least, uh, Paul says that the Lord Jesus will bring his people safely home. There's something future that Christ will do for him as well as uh, the rest of those who believe. Look at verse 18 again. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is not some kind of fanatical triumphalism. Paul is not claiming that after having just told Timothy in the previous verses in, in this chapter, that his time of his departure had come and he had finished the race and all that, he wasn't suddenly doing a 180 and saying, ah, I'm just kidding, you know, Jesus is going to keep me going. I'm going to live for a thousand years down here and keep preaching and no, nobody's going to touch a hair on my head. No, he, he, he's not contradicting himself at all. But what he's saying is that not even death itself could separate him from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans chapter 8. And the Lord Jesus will rescue his redeemed people, including Paul, from every evil deed and bring those who believe and all of those who believe safely into his heavenly kingdom. Nothing Satan can do can prevent that. Paul's execution under Nero in, in, in the middle of the, of the first century, in, the, in this, around 63 or 65 A.D., what, what harm did that do Paul from an etern his perspective of eternity? None, because what, is it, what does Paul say Jesus was going to do? Bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. He did just that, and even martyrdom did not prevent that. That is what Paul was saying. They, ultimately, they can't hurt me. Jesus will bring me safely home. The Lord, who he calls him three times in our text, he could have just said Jesus. He says the Lord, the one who is in charge, the one who is the judge of judges, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, will bring him and all his redeemed safely into his heavenly kingdom. The wicked who cruelly persecute and kill Christians, even to our day, not just in the past, are helpless to do anything to separate God's people from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. They are helpless to do anything to keep Christ from bringing us all safely to our heavenly home in his heavenly kingdom. What a comfort that is to Paul, no doubt it was, and what a comfort that should be to every believer in Christ 
You know, from time to time, I always like quoting the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, if you're a Presbyterian and you know the Shorter Catechism, if nothing else, you usually know the first question. What is, your, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I was going to put you all on the spot, but I figured I better not do that. But, but the Heidelberg, some of you are, have been raised with the Heidelberg. It's a longer answer, and I won't quote the whole thing. Uh, but what's the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Your only, you know, it's, imp- it's implied. What's your only true comfort in life and in death? People have lots of comforts that won't really comfort them when it comes time to go through trials or to die. But what is your only comfort in life and in death? And what's the answer? That we are not our own but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. And then it goes on to say this. He, that's Christ, he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's your only comfort, believer, in death and in life. The Lord Jesus Christ not only paid for our sins with his precious blood so that we now belong to him, but he also watches over you and I in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head if you're a Christian apart from God's will. And he assures all of his own of eternal life and enables us to live, despite all the the trials of this life, to live for him. And that catechism, the Heidelberg, was written around 1,500 years after Paul's day, but I think it's the very same comfort in life and in death that Paul talks about here in our text that he had in Jesus Christ. It's the same comfort in life and in death that is the possession of everyone who believes in Christ for salvation. And only those who are in Christ by faith have that comfort in life and in death. So I'll ask this morning in closing, do you have that kind of comfort in life and in death? Do you know that you belong to Christ by faith and that he has paid for all your sins with his precious blood and that he, the Lord Jesus, who's in charge of all things, watches over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head apart from his will, that whatever trial comes in your life, whatever sickness, whatever difficulty, even death itself, comes to you through his hands and his hands alone, ultimately. And that even that will work together for your salvation by his grace. Do you have that comfort in life and in death? If you don't, turn to Christ by faith and live As Paul says at the end of that passage, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I I don't want to not touch at all on the the closing greeting, but I'll just briefly say this. The kind of comfort that Paul had in life and in death enabled him to not lose it after talking about his own death. And even at the end of this letter, calmly say, greet so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. And such and such greets you and all these things. Because he had the real comfort in the midst of his trials because of Christ who's reigning even now on high let's let's pray